We're continuing our study of the book of Acts. And we'll be looking at the first 14 verses this morning. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the, bench, we, on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were there, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. My brother always accused me of doing things the hard way. I think, it, I think, it, I think he meant uh, you don't really have any common sense and uh, you never do things the right way that, that they should be done, whether it was fixing a bicycle or uh, mowing the grass or wh whatever it might be that uh, I had set my hand to do. Doing things the hard way. We, we like in our lives to do things the easy way, and, and we certainly want our lives to be easy lives. But the Christian life that Paul was called to lead was obviously one of great difficulty. Uh, we've already seen as he's traveling about, sharing Christ, preaching the gospel, that he has many enemies and those who oppose him, and it's a great struggle. Uh, he outlines many of the, the difficulties he went through in some of his letters, being beaten and stoned and left for dead and spending days in the open sea and in peril on land and peril on sea and danger here and there. Uh, and imprisoned, and the Lord has promised even more of that for Paul. 
Back in Acts 19, verse 21, we are told, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. He had resolved, he had established in the Spirit that he was going to go to Jerusalem and then hopefully, ultimately, he desired to go to Rome. And then, in the last chapter we studied, Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained or bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So the text before us today that we, we read, we Mentions, uh, that's mentioned several place names like Kos and Rhodes and Ptolemaeus. Well, it's describing Paul's journey ultimately to Jerusalem and that he was resolved and constrained and bound by the Spirit to take this journey. It wasn't necessarily his choice. He's yielding himself to what the Spirit has revealed he should do. Yet we see here that when he spends a week in Tyre amongst those Christians there, that in verse 4 the, uh, we are told that through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now does this mean that the Spirit is giving contradictory messages? Is the Spirit giving us contradictory messages? That's funny, you know, I, I told you I broke my watch a few weeks ago and I haven't gotten a new one, so I'm using my phone and I just got a call from Jamaica, of all places. I wonder what the Lord's trying to tell me. Well, the Lord had told Paul to go to Jerusalem. Now these uh, Christians in Tyre are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, and they're saying it through the Spirit, the text tells us. And the Spirit is certainly not giving contradictory messages. Luke wouldn't write that. Luke doesn't believe that. But what are we to make of this? It would seem that the Spirit, it would seem that the Spirit revealed to the Christians of Tyre that Paul would face trials and difficulties in Jerusalem, just like he's going to receive that same message from Agabus in a few verses. And so those facts were revealed to them by the Spirit, and so their conclusion was that Paul shouldn't go there. If you're going to be thrown in prison, why would you go there? But their advice to Paul was wrong, how he should respond to the prophecy. We know that because Paul's already, been, already told us and been told by the Spirit and been constrained, bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then, of course, when he gets to Caesarea, uh, Agabus prophesies about the trials he will face when he gets to Jerusalem and his his companions and friends there were urging him not to go up to Jerusalem, same as the Christians in Tyre. They thought, well, if going to Jerusalem gets Paul thrown in jail, and getting thrown in jail is a bad thing, therefore Paul must not go uh, to Jerusalem. But that's not what the Holy Spirit had told Paul to do. They just came to the wrong conclusion about how they should react to what the Holy Spirit was telling them. They were saying, you should go the easy route, not the difficult route. 
But it had already been revealed to Paul that he was to go to Jerusalem and it was going to be a difficult thing. Now as I contemplated this, this text before us today, uh, my question was this. If the Holy Spirit had clearly instructed Paul that he was to go to Jerusalem even though he was going to encounter imprisonment and afflictions there, why did the Spirit reveal it to the Christians in Tyre and Caesarea? I mean, Paul already knew where he was going. Uh, he knew what the Lord wanted him to do through the Holy Spirit. Why did the Lord reveal it to these other Christians that Paul was going to face peril if he went to Jerusalem? And... Why did Luke feel it necessary to tell us all this? Why did, you know, as, as he uh, is compiling this record of the early church, why does he feel compelled? Why does the Spirit put it upon his heart to tell us these facts that, that the Spirit is revealing as Paul goes along to basically everyone in his path that Paul's going to suffer? Paul's going to go up to Jerusalem and he's going to be thrown in prison there. Why is it necessary? Well, surely for those Christians there in Tyre and Caesarea and other places and, and for Christians throughout the ages who have read the Bible and read this account in the book of Acts and for us today, this message, this account is something that we need to hear about. See, because we are liable like the Christians in Tyre and Caesarea and the traveling, even Paul's traveling companions, we are likely to come to the wrong conclusion when faced with potential suffering, when faced with potential difficulty in living out the Christian life. That conclusion is one that all Christians throughout time have been and are apt to make, and especially... For us today, living in America in the 21st century, that wrong conclusion is that the safe way, the easy way, is always the right way. And I want to ask and answer two questions today. Is the Christian life easy? And I think you know the answer to that one already through what I've already said. And is the Christian life worth it? Is the Christian life easy? No, absolutely not. And that's not a message that we today in America like to hear. But we need to hear that. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy was his young protege. He was grooming Paul. To, uh, groom, Paul was grooming Timothy uh, to carry on the ministry. And uh, he tells him there, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And we see evidence of this uh, on television. The, the preachers that are more popular 
and who get television spots and whose churches are full are, are giving this message that to follow the Lord leads to wealth, health, and prosperity. And that's what Americans are passionate about. I mean, Americans, if you just watch the TV, we're obviously materialistic and we love our wealth. Uh, I saw yesterday, was, I, was, I was watching TV commercials for a new series that's, uh, that's all about, by Ron Howard, about how making advances in medicine to fight off old age so we can live longer lives and be healthy and uh, stave off death. We're obsessed with that sort of thing. You see uh, all the, the plastic surgery that happens today, people wanting to, to, to maintain their youthful looks. These are the things that Americans value. And the preachers who, promising, who are promising that following the Lord will, will guarantee this, this wonderful, uh, uh, long-lasting, easy, uh, wealthy life are the ones people love to hear. Itching ears to tell them what they want to hear. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible actually say about it? Not only here in Acts 21, but throughout the scriptures, we are reminded again and again that following the Lord often leads to conflict, trials, tribulation, and suffering. And we're not to be surprised by it. We are actually to expect it. What did Jesus tell the disciples? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And Paul goes on and tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we could go on and on. Uh, with the, and pile up a, a number of Bible verses that say exactly the same thing uh, time and again. And we can go back even into the Old Testament and see examples of people seeking to live faithful lives before the Lord and being persecuted and, and suffering because of that. People like Joseph and Daniel, and the list goes on. See, the Lord wanted the Christians in Tyre and Caesarea and all over the world, and Christians today, to know that following him is not an easy path. It might have some suffering, persecution, even imprisonment, like Paul was going to experience in it. It never has been, nor will it ever be, in this world as it is, an easy path. Now why? Why, why is it not easy? Because Christians first of all, are in conflict with the world. As Jesus said, the world hates me, it will hate you also. See, being a, a disciple in those days, and of course it means the same thing today, but we often think of a disciple as just someone who's learning from another person. A disciple is someone who just follows the teachings of someone else. But the discipleship we're talking about and that Jesus and the disciples demonstrated was more than just following his teachings. It meant having a relationship with him. Disciples lived with their teachers and literally were with them all the time, living life together. 
And the students learned from the example of the teacher. And the students were identified with the teacher. Even Paul, when he's giving his testimony in Philippians, talks about his teacher, Gamaliel. And, that, uh, that, and, and he was identified as a Pharisee because he was part of the school of Gamaliel. It was a, an important feature in his growth, in his learning. He was a disciple of Gamaliel. Well, he, he traded off Gamaliel for Jesus, thankfully. But that's the kind of discipleship we're talking about, uh, a, a very close identification. And if they hate the teacher, it only follows that they will hate the students as well, since the students are friends with the teacher and live the same way as the teacher lives. We just ask ourselves, are we that kind of disciple? Uh, the kind of disciple that closely identifies and has a deep relationship with Christ and, and walks with him and follows his teachings. So it's not easy because Christians are in conflict with the world, but Christians are also in conflict with the devil, the evil one. As Peter warns his readers, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Satan wants to trip up followers of Christ. He makes it difficult for followers of Christ. He throws temptations and trials in, in the way. Uh, he's the accuser. We see the example of Job. You know, Job was a righteous man. He hadn't done anything wrong. But, but the, Satan comes and accuses uh, Job to the Lord and says, Job only follows you because you bless him so much. Take away all those blessings and he, will, he won't follow you anymore. Now the devil is under God's sovereignty and the, God allows Satan to test Job. And Job passes the test. He says, though he slay me, yet I will continue to follow him, to love him, to be his. It wasn't because the Lord was blessing him. He loved God for God's sake. And the devil was wrong. And, the, and, and Job and the Lord were proved right. So we had this conflict with evil and, and uh, the, the devil and, and all the things that he throws in our ways. And then, on top of all that, it's not easy to be a Christian because we're in conflict with our own sin nature, our own flesh. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But to be a disciple of Christ means that you have to deny yourself. You know, your desires might run contrary to Christ's desires. I mean, if the Lord told me that I was going to go to prison, I wouldn't desire it necessarily. But if the Lord wanted me to do that, like Paul, I would pray and hope that, that maybe I would deny myself and do exactly what he wanted me to do. And that, that's played out every day. When we face a temptation, a temptation to, to run headlong into some sin, especially the ones we, we enjoy the most, our will is coming into conflict with his will. Our flesh is coming into conflict with, with his ways for us. So it's not easy 
being a Christian because of the, the world, the devil, and the flesh. The scriptures describe it as a battle. They use that, that imagery to t- describe the Christian life. Or a race. I ran the 5K last April. And, you know, you, I don't think of a race often as being hard, but it is. You know, when I think of a race, I enjoy seeing these guys run. Uh, I enjoy the spectator part of the race. But when you actually get out there and run, whew, I would think I would have rather been in battle. Because at the end, I really wanted somebody to shoot me because I felt so bad. But the Christian life is described in these ways, a battle, a race, those type of metaphors. It's not easy. But we do not shy away from doing the will of the Lord just because it creates difficulty in our lives. If that were the case, we would never follow the Lord because, it's all, because it always has some degree of difficulty to it. Now, second question. Is the Christian life worth it? The answer to this one, of course, is yes. Paul thought so. You look at what he said in verse 13. When, it, when they're urging him not to go to Jerusalem, he says, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. We see Paul's heart here shining through. Uh, he describes himself in Philippians. And it's consistent with what we're seeing here. In Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul wanted to know Christ. That was what was gained to him. That was what was important to him. Christ was. And he goes on. And he talks about in chapter 1, uh, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, Paul was, was a man who was all about Jesus. And he was truly free. He was a truly free. He was all about Christ and nothing else. And we see here that following Jesus frees you from bondage that the world, that, that serving the world puts you in. Think about the grand purpose that we have for our lives. What are you after? What are you seeking? What is your purpose in life? If your grand purpose is to get money, you're going to be completely at the mercy of that pursuit. Your life will revolve around that. You, you will have to work in order to get money because that's how you get money. 
or, we, or engage in a life of crime, a dangerous life of crime, which will certainly uh, bring you to ruin. If you're all about money, every decision you make will be a monetary decision. Whether you go here or do that or, or talk to this person or that person, it's all about the money. See, it actually controls your entire life. And you can substitute money for anything. If you're seeking a life of ease and comfort, you will never choose the difficult path. And as they say, uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Not choosing the difficult path keeps you away from some wonderful opportunities and, and wonderful experiences. If your goal in life is to be secure, you're going to be controlled by the risk factor of everything, whether you do it or not, depending on whether, uh, whether it's risky or not. If your ultimate goal is to get married and have a family, you'll be controlled by the lives of your spouse and children, by their opinion of you, and by how they behave and how good a, a, a wife or husband or, or father or mother you are. Now, all these things are not bad things, but they're not ultimate things. They're temporary things of this world, some wonderful blessings from the Lord. They surely are. But when they became, become the most important thing, well, we are placing our lives in something that is temporary and, and will abandon us at the end. You can't take money with you. Uh, you cannot guarantee security on this earth. You will die one day. A life of ease and comfort uh, is really a poor way to live your life. It's not very fulfilling. Living in those uh, relationships, being controlled by those relationships that we have in life, even though they're a blessing from the Lord, if that's the sum total of your life when you die... You won't have that anymore. See, the reason following Jesus is worth it, there's, a, there's a many reasons, but just this reason. It's because he's eternal and he is good. For those who have Christ who belong to him, he can never be taken away. Even when you die, as Paul said, you have Christ. He's eternal. He never goes away. He cannot be taken from you. Your security can be taken. Your comfort can be taken. Your family can be taken. Your money can be taken. All of these things can be taken. But if you have Christ, he cannot ever be taken from you. He's what the universe is all about. So it is worth it. But don't be a mercenary. You know, some, some Christians, some so-called Christians, are mercenaries. They, you know, a mercenary is a, a soldier of fortune, a soldier who's just a soldier in order to get paid. And he'll go off to any army, whoever the highest bidder is. Some people follow Christ like mercenaries. They want the Lord to pay them to be his followers. Lord, I will follow you as long as you give me peace or security or comfort or money or whatever it is that we're actually placing most importance on. Christ is just something, someone we're using in order to get the things we really want. But a true Christian is someone who wants Christ, not just the blessings that Christ gives. I've given you a quote here from Thomas Akempis in his famous work, the, the Imitation of Christ. It's a long quote, so I invite you to read along with me. It's powerful. 
Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who care for trial. He finds many to share his banquet, but few to share his fast. All desire to be happy with him, few wish to suffer anything for him. Many follow him, many follow him to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the cup of his suffering. Many revere his miracles, few approach the shame of the cross. Many love him as long as they encounter no hardship. Many praise and bless him as long as they receive some comfort from him. But if Jesus hides himself and leaves them for a while, they fall either into complaining or into a deep depression. Those, on the contrary, who love him for his own sake and not for any comfort of their own, bless him in all trial and anguish of heart, as well as in the bliss of consolation. Even if he should never give them consolation, yet they would continue to praise him and wish always to give him thanks. What power there is in pure love for Jesus, love that is free from all self-interest and self-love. Do not those who always seek consolation deserve to be called mercenaries? Do not those who always think of their own profit and gain prove that they love themselves rather than Christ? Where can a man be found who desires to serve God for nothing? Rarely indeed is a man so spiritual as to strip himself of all things. And who shall find a man so truly poor in spirit as to be free from every creature? His value is like that of things bought from the most distant lands. No one is more wealthy than such a man. No one is more powerful. No one freer than he who knows how to leave all things and think of himself as the least of all. Well, Christ is calling us to himself today. Come follow me, he says. Come have part with me. Come have a relationship with me. Be in union with me. And he's encouraging us to quit all other pursuits and to make him the main pursuit, the ultimate pursuit. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And Christ is worth it because he can never be lost. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts towards you and away from the the idols of the heart, things of this world that we love. And from ourselves, because we love ourselves often more than we love you. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to each one of us the glory of Christ, especially this Christmas season as we contemplate his taking on human flesh, pouring himself out for us, becoming a servant in order that we might be his people. And Lord, we pray that you would reveal this to us all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.